Born in Adelaide, it seemed destined that Jill Sykes would pursue a career in journalism. The family business was in newspapers. Working at the Advertiser, not yet owned by Rupert, Jill completed a four-year cadetship and immediately headed to London. She arrived in the middle of the 60s, a decade of experimentation, creativity and a vibrant arts existence. Securing the longest holiday job in history, she wrote a column for the Evening News covering swinging London and the arts. Working near the paper's dance reviewer, he discovered that she'd been paying to see dance. So she was offered an opportunity to try her hand at reviewing dance when he wasn't available, and so it began. In her role as reviewer, she has seen an extraordinary amount of production and the work of significant contributors like Graham Murphy and Bangara Dance Theatre, following them as they evolved and made their salient mark. Jill has been a freelance arts journalist most of her career, and in addition to dance, she writes about theatre, music and the visual arts. She also contributes writings on dance to specialist publications throughout Australia and overseas. Jill has been awarded an AM for her services to dance in Australia. Her knowledge is extensive. Her passion is palpable. Here's my chat with Jill Sykes. Jill, thank you for, for um, having this conversation with us today. I think it's a, sure it'll be a, pleasure. <laughs> a, a really um, essential asset to um, what we've been doing at, at Stages. Um, I want to start with um, the role of, of an actor. We, we go to the theatre and we see an actor perform and they have this wonderful power to transport us in, in time and location to, uh, to, to all sorts of um, wonderful experiences. But of course they have the advantage of text and the voice. What is it about the dancer which has the power to, to transport us, to, to engage us in ways that can sometimes be very unexpected? They have the body, don't they? But they also have to have the mind, to my way of thinking partly because I love theatre and come from a theatrical background in the sense of appreciating it. Um, but dancers can tell you all sorts of things through their bodies and quite often even more abstract, for want of a better word, things than perhaps an actor could because the actor maybe has, is, is held back by the words, has to keep to the words, and maybe good actors can go beyond the words I think, but some actors will just depend so much on the words that you don't get beyond them. So with dance, we as an audience can read yes. into the performance of the dancer? They can, yeah. um, I think, but then the dancer has to give you the chance to read, and not all dancers can do that, I wish they could. Um, and of course, not all dancers are trying to tell a story, I and mean, we're not always talking about like story ballets that the classical, Western classical ballet will give you. Um, Quite often it's about thoughts or moods or something really quite different from what an actor would do. So um, they, that, that physicality also um, equates to a magnificent athleticism. Um, not always. Not always? No. Someone can walk and sit and move an arm in quite an unathletic way, <laughs> if it's possible to say that, and they can still convey all sorts of things. Yeah. True, true. I guess you have, you know, the, the, a myriad of companies who specialise in different um, aspects of dance and, and have different abled actors. Um, yeah, I think of Lloyd Newsom and, and Deviate who tell these stories in quite unique ways. Yes, and he always has a story to tell. So he actually is a very theatrical choreographer. And when you go to see him, you expect to be getting a story um, of one kind or another. And also he has very thoughtful performers, so he, his company and his work has always been very, very interesting to see, I think. Um, but sometimes you get people that you're almost only there for the technical abilities, uh, and that is fantastic to see. But sometimes you're there, um, I can think of a, a Japanese performer, Kazuo Ono, and last time he was in Australia, he was in his 80s. Um, not much technical jumping around there, but he conveyed so much. Um, and much younger performers will have uh, a very, um, let me see, minimal style of movement, uh, something like postmodern dance, but that's another subject. Um, you don't see a whole lot of movement at all, but you still they can convey something because of 
what they're doing minimally um, and you, you know that you're going to that if you're lucky and if you don't know you're going you might be very bored. <laughs> it must be quite tragic for a dancer when they rely so much on their body and eventually as with all of us it, it gives out um, and they can't dance anymore. Um, unless in unique cases like this over Sometimes they do pick up um, different ways of doing things um, and continue on and on, like I'm mentioning um, Kazuo Ono in his 80s. Uh, and also there are other dancers, like a man will lose the jump that quite often, particularly in classical ballets, what he depends on. But then he'll pick up other roles and maybe become a very senior performer because he is really, really good at conveying... Um, thoughts and he's he can walk across the stage and still mean something really important i wish a lot of dancers could walk better across the stage actually <laughs> do, do you have favorite dancers that you enjoy no, look, i've seen it? generations of dancers you have many favorites at different times yeah um i guess uh, certain dancers have the ability to connect in different ways mm. with you and and that's your favourite dancer of, say, of the show, of the, of the time. There are favourite dancers I haven't even seen yet, yeah, I hope. Yeah, yes. absolutely, absolutely. So, look, you've been a dance critic for a number of decades now. So was, was dance a prominent um, experience in your youth when you were a child? Um, only as uh, in the sense that uh, all little girls want to go to dancing class, so of course I did that, but it was very obvious I was going to grow much too big and clunky to be a dancer and also then it was almost all classical ballet there was very little contemporary work so you know you really had to be petite and gorgeous well that's the tragic thing too isn't it for a dancer I see, I see it in my uh, role in a, a performing arts education that you see these little girls or boys who have the passion and possibly the talent but their physicality just holds them back from ever achieving but very right. luckily, there are now so many different ways you can use your dancing ability. And I think of one person I saw as a student, and I can remember thinking, oh, she is just amazing at what she manages to convey. Nobody else was managing to convey what she could in that student class that I went to see, but she's going to have terrible trouble with her weight. Um, and I won't say her name because um, she was very offended when I recalled this not so long ago. She has gone on to do the most fascinating things as a dance theatre performer um, and using that dance training but using it in completely different ways and with a lot of intelligence and sensitivity and it's truly fascinating so she's contributed hugely to dance but in a different way so well, I guess because, because of all those experiences the dance world has evolved and offers everybody an opportunity to yes. participate yes so dance goes in all sorts of directions and also people People who uh, are keen on expressing themselves through movement will then find different ways of doing it. So uh, that's exciting for us on the outside. It's always exciting too. See, I say there may be favourite dancers of the future, but quite often I'm following somebody I've seen as a student and I can say 20-odd years later, what a great career she's had when I was so worried when she was a student, she'd never have any career at all. <laughs> invention's the mother of necessity, or, or, yes, or whatever yes, they say. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes. Necessity is the mother of invention. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so do you get to see many student works? Mm, I, I, not so no? much now. No, right. No, no. Because you've seen um, many dancers at the start of their careers, as you've been describing, that go on, but also mm. companies. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of something like Bangara. Do you remember the first time you saw oh, Bangara? Of course, of course. And you see, I go back to the National Aboriginal um, and Islander Skills Development Association, which is what NASDA is. It's now NASDA College, but that is what the initials are. And that was, I think, 75, 1975 that that started. Um, and that was extraordinary and very exciting. And then Bangara Dance Theatre grew out of that in about 1979. But initially it was such a government-sponsored thing, they really only wanted to show it off to visiting dignitaries. And we weren't allowed to properly look at it or review it. Or Very weird situation. And then it became, that's all right, became public and gone on to fabulous heights. Well, it must have been very exciting to see it at that, that ground level oh, yes. evolving. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes. And someone like Graham Murphy at Sydney Dance Company? Graham Murphy well been... before Sydney Dance Company as well, <laughs> right. yeah. yes. So, because um, he was very young um, and 
never a great dancer, but obviously his creative talent was extraordinary. And that was Peggy Van Praag at the Australian Ballet, who gave him a chance to choreograph. And luckily he worked with Janet Vernon, who is now his wife, many years later, and they've worked together all these years. Um, and the two of them as a partnership have been quite extraordinary. Well, we talked about um, what makes a good dancer, or we've touched on it. What do you think makes a good choreographer? Mm, imagination. Yeah. But the ability to convey what they're thinking about in their imagination to the dancers in such a way that the dancers then can convey it to us, if that makes sense, because it has to work that way. And I think, um, if I can use Graham as an example, because it's one I'm very familiar with, um, and he has an ability, a wonderful communicative ability, which goes beyond dance or dance studio or anything else, but he's got that. And... Um, he has the imagination and he made the Sydney Dance Company. It was a real company with him, almost a family. Um, and he made ballets using the characters of those dancers. And they weren't the most skillful dancers always in the entire world. But he used them in such a way that he could use their qualities of movement to convey what was in his imagination. And they blossomed with him and he could bring things out of them that as you watch them over the years you thought oh, I can hardly believe that little person I used to see in the background somewhere is now this extraordinary performer um, and that's absolutely thrilling and I think that we were so lucky in Sydney to have had that company year after year not everything was absolutely wonderful um, I hadn't always given him good reviews and he was very unhappy about that sometimes I heard back um, but uh, overall, it was just an extraordinary period of dance and, and, and watching that development. And also such a range of dance because he could call on historical, personal, um, all sorts of associations and give us something different year after year. And of course that company has taken on different, um, uh, a different personality, I guess, depending on who was at the helm. Yes, it's and they was great for such a long time, 30 years. And then tragically, um, Tanya Ledke, who had worked with smaller groups, and she was chosen um, to succeed him, an extraordinary talent, and that tragic road accident in which she was killed mm. um, robbed us of her and her talent. Yes, but, uh, She was amazing, just amazing. So yes, It's extraordinary to think what could have been. If, uh, yes, we yeah. mustn't think about that. No, 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 no. no. no but that, of course it's in great hands at the moment. Now it's too. a completely different person, Raphael Bonicella, um, who has built up a, a good following, uh, absolutely a charming person, and he's wonderful, skillful dancers, and totally different sort of choreographer to what Graham was, which is possibly a, a good thing to have that, that contrast. So tell us about where you grew up. Let's, let's oh, yes. learn a I bit more about Adelaide. you. And I've got to say, I come to, to reviewing as a journalist, and I come from a whole family of journalists, and I can't resist telling you that my great-great-great, five greats, I think it is, grandfather, founded the first non-government newspaper in Australia back in the early 1800s, um, and was quite a character. Um, and I've got newspaper people in the family going way back, um, what was the name of the paper that you're great? The Monitor. The Monitor. Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, uh, with my own family, my own parents were uh, newspaper people, my grandparents, my grandfather was. Uh, and um, he was also co-founder of the Adelaide Festival, um, Lloyd Dumas. But from the business side, and John Bishop, who head of the Conservatorium of Music in Adelaide. He was the outside. And people kept saying, now John's always talking about that and Lloyd's always talking about that. Why don't we get them together? And, and that's how it all happened back in the 50s. Wow. Um, so there's sort of involvement in that kind of way. And also I was lucky, I think, going to a school in Adelaide that in those days was very broad and they didn't mind what you studied. So I did things like physics and chemistry and maths as well as French and Latin and, and music and drama and it was really amazing because I had all those choices and I thought for a while I might even be an actor because NIDA was just starting up and that was an exciting thought but then I decided I'd never be good enough. <laughs> I, think, I think I was right. But I did do some amateur acting which was 
a great experience in Adelaide. And we didn't have any professional companies at that time. We had a professional director and maybe a nucleus of one or two actors, but a lot of performances with um, the professionals being supplemented by amateurs who quite often became professionals, professionals later yeah. on. Yes. Yeah. They need yes. to start somewhere and have a, have exactly. a grounding and an yes, experience. Yes. So that was sort of my growing up background. But then I decided to be a journalist like so many others in the family before me. Um, Do you have siblings? No. Oh, one sister. One, one sister, sister. Right, yes. Right. And she turned into a television director, so she was... Oh, OK. Nervous. So it seemed yes. predetermined that you're going, yes, going to the arts. Was it, was it um, a childhood which offered you an opportunity to see much live performance? Yes, quite a lot. Um, um, the first thing that I can remember, only just, um, was when someone was sick in the family and couldn't go to the Ballet Rombert. And I was six years old and saw Giselle. And really what I all remember about it um, was that all these adults were crying, which I'd never seen before, <laughs> sitting in the theatre in the darkness with crying adults because it was so sad. <laughs> what did a six-year-old make of that? Well, I really don't know because I've seen so many Giselle since. Um, I can't tell whether I remember that one. Um, but I do remember the adults crying. Were you able to shed a tear at any of the other Giselles yourself? Oh, yes, I still do. Yeah, yeah. It's good enough. What is it about that story which can touch us? Um, a sense of loss. Yeah. Yes. I think it's probably. And, and what might have been, and, the, and guilt as well. Have you ever seen Giselle? Uh, yes, I have. You I have. have. Yeah, yeah. So you know a bit about the Absolutely. story. Absolutely. Yeah, yes. Yeah. No, yes. It's beautiful, beautiful. So where did you study journalism? I didn't. There you weren't didn't. any journalism schools. Of course, so it would have been I'm an sure apprenticeship, a cadetship. A cadetship, so, yes. Right. So I did a cadetship at the Advertiser in Adelaide before it was owned by Rupert Murdoch, a um, long mm -hmm. time before. So, so, what did, so, so tell us what a cadetship entailed. Because mm. now, now it's, 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 <laughs> young journalists go off to university. I thought of this and I put a bracket, shall I say this or not? Well, I, I um, run about the first or second day, we had to make the tea. Um, and I'd never used an electric jug before, so I didn't put enough water in and I broke the jug. <laughs> and they were so appalled by that that they thought I was safer with a typewriter. <laughs> and I don't think I had to make the tea again. <laughs> I was much better off with the typewriter. So you wrote stories, but under supervision. Um, and that was over a period of four years. And I think you had le sort of lectures from people who told you how to do things, like once a week or something, but you just worked basically. Um, slave labour, we were much cheaper. Um, but I suppose... What sort of stories were you covering? All sorts of things. Um, local, in, local, in that, local news, Local guess, news, yeah. and in that era too, um, it wasn't, thank God, a social round that I had to do, but it was a feature section which concentrated on features that they thought women might be interested in, which luckily my boss and all of us thought was anything, and I didn't really have to worry too much. You could do all sorts of things. And I always chose arts things to do, which art stories, which I did for all my career. That wasn't the only thing I did. Um, Were there many women doing a cadetship at the time? Uh, probably more, always more men, always yep. more males, yes. And they got all the new good news stories. Um, was that frustrating? That was oh, yes, of course. But anyway... But we, we just you'd want, to, you'd want to cover arts anyway, anyway, wouldn't you? Yes, yes. <laughs> I would. So it didn't matter. So, so that was sort of where I got a lot of opportunities to write about things about the arts. Um, was there any other... I mean, you spoke of maybe going to NIDA. Was there any other occupations you considered before the arts oh, found you? No. Or the journalism found you? No. No. No, Don't that's what so. you want to do. It was... Newspapers was obviously... Oh, yes. Life. No. And also, it is a fantastic job. Can I recommend it or recommend it in those days? You never stop learning because you're meeting and talking to people about something new every day. You eventually went off to London. Yes, as soon as I'd finished my cadetship. Oh, OK. Off so, to London. So that was to seek more work or just have oh. a holiday for a while? Oh, no, that was to go and work in, in the big wide world. Oh, great, great. Because a lot of people at this we time did. were all going to London, yeah. Yes, yes. Oh, yes, we all, that's where we went. And luckily I went overland through India and Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, etc., etc. I mean, stuff that we couldn't do now. And how lucky was I? Because it was a totally new world um, of architecture and arts and dance and music. Um, that I'd never seen anything 
Travel's a wonderful sure. education, isn't it? Surely is. Yeah. So that was one education. Yeah. And then I got to London and then I got a job on a rather um, uh, unliterary newspaper, the London e the Evening News, um, which turned out to be splendid because no one else much was interested in the arts. So guess who did all the art stories? And also we were, had a wonderful chief of staff. And then we were in a huge, great room. And uh, every morning he'd get all the mail and different things and he'd shriek out, calling out to everyone as stuff for them. And he'd say, culture, Jill. <laughs> <laughs> and so I would get all the tickets that came in, so many of them to anything that I wanted to go to. So, so this is uh, theatre in the West End and the ballet and music, opera? everything. Yeah, great. And I worked on an evening paper, which meant I had to start awfully early, like seven in the morning sometimes, at least eight. So that, that wasn't great for theatre going. But I lived so what, so, right. so what year is this? 65 on. Oh, great. So the swinging 70s. 60s. Swinging 60s. What an exciting time to be oh, there. It was fantastic. Yeah. It was truly amazing. And it was fun being on an evening paper because we... This is quite apart from reviewing. Um, you would dash from one story to another and you would do the story and phone it in in those days. Um, no mobiles and you'd have to know where all your public phones were. Um, and phone it in and then they'd tell you where to go next and you'd go to the next place and do the next story. So you're on the road the whole time, um, which is a very exciting way of living. Probably, I really enjoyed it. Probably unfair to ask you because you had so many experiences, but was there... A particular artist or event which happened, which you covered, which um, stays with you? Probably only one that I thought of, and this is very much as a journalistic thing, but actually got an art story to lead two editions of the newspaper on the front page at the top, which sadly was a wonderful ballerina, Svetlana Beriosova, losing a baby. Oh, no. <laughs> Terribly <laughs> sad story. Yeah. But, uh, of course, I was very proud. There was, a, you know... The headline is the paper's headline, and then there's my headline and my name, and so I sent it home, of course, and but sadly, but very touchingly, um, when my grandfather died years later, the family found my headline story was in his wallet, after all his years, and he'd always kept it because he was very proud. Isn't that sweet? That's very sweet. Yeah. Very sweet. Yeah. But quite apart from that, I sat near um, a very nice man who reviewed dance. Um, and he loved the Royal Ballet best of all and he lived quite a long way out of central London and he was interested to find that I was paying to go and see dance so he said why don't you perhaps try your hand at reviewing some of the smaller things um, uh, and maybe you could do some dance reviews and then I wouldn't have to stay up all night and go home very late by train to my distant dwelling. So, so, so was dance a specific uh, interest at this time, or you, you loved all arts? I love, I look, I love all the arts. Partic I know more about performing, and have done more with the performing arts than the visual arts until recently, but that's by why. So it was very much a happy accident where... Absolute luck. ...that you look, sort of found luck, yourself... Luck, luck again, there's more of it to come. Yeah. Um, great good luck, and people, people were very generous, and of course what to him was minor, to me was absolutely major, because that was just when... Um, Britain was discovering modern dance in the 1960s and modern dance comes from or comes from further back than Martha Graham but she's probably the best known exponent and she was doing it in the 1920s and Lon London was so far behind it had never had a modern dance company there so apart from Martha Graham bringing a company and performing um, in those days the company started London Contemporary Dance Theatre um, while I was there and of course reviewing all these different things. Um, so who were some of the practitioners that were, were working at that time? Uh, in, in London? In London, yeah, yeah. I honestly can't remember can't remember? No. No, no. no. Um, but that was the involvement of a whole new yes, style? Yes, completely and that changed a lot of things there. And the Ballet Rombert, which goes back a long way, they had a huge revival around that time and Marie Rombert, who founded it, was still alive. And I remember sitting behind her at the theatre and she was just amazed and all these people coming to see her company doing things that she would never have dreamed of. A most delightful woman. Um, who was that lovely man who gave you the opportunity and suggested that you His name was Duncan Harrison, I can still remember, and I'm sorry, he's probably long gone now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but people were generous, first of all, in letting me, introducing me and letting me into their... And not seeing you as a threat. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I didn't want to go and see First Night 
well, I'd love to have seen First Night Cast at the Royal Ballet. Um, and indeed, I did go and see the top people, but not as a reviewer. And that's what he wanted to do. And it was still when Margot Fontaine and Rudolf Nureyev were dancing together, which was a great period for the Royal. And Kenneth Macmillan, the choreographer, doing wonderful, making wonderful ballets. So it was a terrific time to be there for that, but um, which I also, of course, saw. Um, and I think it was getting to know all the others. And talking again about generosity, people let you into their rehearsals, um, which was quite, I think, quite extraordinary looking back on it. Partly perhaps because I was a very, uh, I was Australian and very enthusiastic, but I would go and interview somebody and make the appointment. I said, and could I perhaps watch a bit of a rehearsal beforehand and traipse off? It was usually in my own time, but of course it didn't matter at all. Um, and you learn so much from watching rehearsals. I'm sure I don't need to tell you that. No, no. no. Um, but particularly, I think, in dance and music, because you see a director getting someone to repeat a dance phrase or a musical phrase over and over, and you can pick, when they get it right, what detail it was that made it right. Um, it's very exciting because that stays in your mind. It's an extraordinary education. Well, just sitting here listening to your vast knowledge of the dance and, and its history. Um, so when you, you started to review, were you reading textbooks or you've just accumulated no, just all going, of this just no, by see, talking see, and listening yes, and, yes. and experiencing? Yes, so like yeah. the way of learning journalism. Now you go you know, to a, an academy somewhere, to a university, and you learn it through textbooks, but I'm sure in practice as well. But... Um, I, I think I was very fortunate that a lot of the things I learned were seeing and doing. Um, so how do you write a review? What do you look for when you go to see performance? What Your your job as the... Do you call yourself a reviewer or a critic? Uh, I tend to say reviewer, yeah. which is probably... C critic comes with critic, a bit barbed. Critic sounds uh, these days a little bit nasty. Yeah, yeah. I've got enough nastiness in the world, which Absolutely. And I'm not after nastiness. So what's your job as a reviewer? To... To communicate w with a reader who may or may not be a potential audience. Um, and I think some of the loveliest responses I've had to my, quote, criticism um, over the years have come from people who said, oh, I had let used to have days when people wrote letters letters from people who lived outside Sydney and say, I live in the country now, I can never get to dance, but I'm so grateful for your reviews because I feel I've been there. And I think, to me, that's the first thing. I want someone to get some kind of feeling... Paint a picture of, of what, what the performance was. Yeah. Um, which one could do much more easily in the old days when 500 words was a short review and I often did 800 to 1,000 words in a review. Um, and nowadays we're meant to do 300, so I sneak that up to 400 when I can. But it, it's so that must different. Be an incredible it, challenge to sort of. How can you it's capture? Much it harder than doing a long one. <laughs> and, and I guess. Because if, you really have to cut, cut it down to, to basics. And if you write over, then you're just going to cut that back. That mm. must be frustrating. But the, everything's cross your fingers, really. Yeah. Um, and it depends. Uh, basically, people shouldn't touch a review because. Because it, an it, opinion piece, and it can change that opinion depending on what they totally. cut out. Yeah, Do they, it, appalling things have happened. But touch wood. Have you got any wood to touch around here? <laughs> touch, touch my head. We'll touch our head. <laughs> <laughs> We've got someone there at the moment who's not letting too much of that happen. But you know, things can change. So, have you seen performances where it's just been really difficult to respond or to write because it was mm. so good, or so so bad, or so indifferent? Or All those things, really. Yeah. Um, I have only once, because we've got a terrible star system now, it's only a very few times that if something's been so bad that I've had to say this is so bad, it's terrible. Um, How long would it take you to write a review? Oh, it varies, a few hours. Yep. But I, I can quite quickly do a draft, and then it's fiddle, 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 fiddle. Is that the right word? Is that the right word? Can't I think of a better word there? How do I cut that down? <laughs> it's always cutting, cutting. But I'm getting better at my 300-word reviews now. I've been doing them for a few years. Excellent. You spoke about Graham Murphy perhaps not being pleased with a couple of your reviews. Yes. 
Is that an occupational hazard that oh, that you're always going oh, to upset yes. somebody? Are you mindful of that happening? Of course, or? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, but I always try to put it in the best possible terms, if that makes sense. It doesn't make a difference to the person that I have reviewed in a less than complimentary fashion. They're going to hate it anyway. And in the days when we did overnight reviews, um, this is for the Sydney Morning Herald, the review would come out in the next day's paper, so that would come out on the streets at about one o'clock in the morning. And quite often there would be phone calls at about half past one a.m. <laughs> with abusive people having had a few drinks. Well, I think very, very cross. Well, as performers, I think we're, we're ego-driven, and you need that ego in order to perform, I think, and it's yes. such a personal expression of, of ourselves so yeah. if somebody whether well, usually the reviewer because they have that, that that mass readership if somebody doesn't like the work that you've done or whatever you you take it very personally mm. but of course if the review is good we think oh, you're the no. you think you're christmas now you use the word <laughs> like and it really isn't liking hasn't got a lot to do with it you've got to be very careful of liking something oh, right. and your, perhaps praising it more your personal and then view, not your, liking right. something um, and recently something that I actually don't like and don't ever want to see it again but it was actually quite interesting to see it so so it's your, your job it every, to it's my job divorce to, your personal opinion exactly and look at it professionally you, you can't as a, as totally a divorce your personal opinions but always bear in mind no, I've got to be absolutely fair. You're probably nicer the ones you don't like than the ones that you do. Because there are those reviewers who make a, a career out of um, putting their own personal nastiness or whatever. And that's not just dance, oh, yes. so that's no, theatre no, or, are or whatever. That, yes. who, and it comes across as very cruel, even though, yes. you know, some people might get but a sometimes guilty wonderful pleasure. wonderful to read. Yeah, well, yes. Wonderful to read, very witty. I remember John Simon in The New Yorker. Yes, and then Clive Barnes was a very famous New New York critic, New York Post. And um, here in, well, I'm saying here in Sydney, um, this could be anywhere, Um, years of, of, um, oh gosh, now I'm going to forget his name for the the bulletin, Brian Hode. Um, But of course he had time to think up his witticisms um, because he was in a weekly magazine. So A, I envied him the space, B, I envied him... um, the time that he had to think about, see, I really envied him, envied him the wit that he could think these things out because they were hilarious. But they weren't very kind quite often to the person he was reviewing. Has your role allowed you to become friendly with the people that you're reviewing or do you do you like to keep a professional distance? From, uh, look, from I've been around so long, I know too many of them. Yeah. It's always harder when you do know them and perhaps better in some ways because they can come and talk to you and said, what was it about so-and-so and so-and-so that you think wasn't good enough or could have been, you know, whatever. Um, but in a way, I'd rather keep it arm's length. Uh, I can remember when Graham Murphy, uh, who I'd got to know quite well, was appointed to the Sydney Dance Company way back when. And I said, oh, no more lovely dinners with Graham. And, uh, you know, whole groups of friends, we used to have fantastic dinners and discussions and everything. But I think quite rightly, once he was running the Sydney Dance Company and I was going to be... That city, one of that city's reviewers, um, that was sort of gone in, in a casual way. You, I mean, you still knew each other as friends and so on. And it's lovely to see him again now. Um, so it could be very difficult. And also people who have gone on being friends over the years in other cities. In London, for instance, um, when I was there and I hadn't counted recently, and of course times have changed with... Um, digital media and social media and so on but there were eight newspapers so somebody who read a review in one newspaper could find one opinion there another six seven different opinions elsewhere so there was a much better range of opinions but if you've only got a couple yes I guess there's a lot of pressure placed on you it's much tougher you're quite a unique animal within in Australia Mm. and being one of very few dance reviewers not a lot of us no, no no So, but always, um, it is a divided thing. My review is for an audience, but certainly my unconscious, including having been an amateur performer myself, I know how it feels when you're given a bad review. <laughs> so you had about five years in London? Uh, yes. Six. Well, six, basically, six. yes. What brought you back to Australia? 
Oh, <laughs> I got caught without a work visa. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't actually need one when I arrived. Um, but unfortunately, coming back from uh, West Africa with a plane full of people, I was one of the few white faces. <laughs> I got somebody who was very tough. Quite funny recalling that. We were all dodging around in the queue trying not to get what we could see. It was a very tough person <laughs> saying, oh, you go first, you go first. But anyway, I got caught. They gave me a year to leave. Um, which is very courteous of the British government. Um, and then I had another wonderful, I saved a thousand American dollars. I had another wonderful travel experience by sp spending a year in Latin America. On the way back? Wandering around on my way back to Australia. And uh, You didn't work there, that was just, no. just fun. Uh, it was fa fantastic, yes, yes. Great year, yes. Uh, and it only cost a thousand American dollars. I mean, that's when you could travel cheap. A bargain. Yes. So you arrived back in, did you come back to Sydney or Adelaide? I went to Adelaide initially, but came to Sydney because I'd had the extra year in London and then the year of travelling, and then came back here early in 1972 and unfortunately Rupert Murdoch had just closed a paper and there were journalists about a million around looking for jobs, so it was quite hard. But, um, were you in a, a, a unique position in that you had that terrific six years of, of writing about the arts in London? You're going to make me recall another story, which doesn't have quite have anything to do with my reviewing. Um, eventually I got a job at the Sydney Morning Herald, and they said, and what stage had you reached? I mean, I've written all this in my application. What stage had you reached when you left Australia? And I said, I've done my cadetship. Um, oh, they said, right, so you were a D grade, just. And I said, yes, because you go D... We used to anyway, CBA. Right, um, and I, I said, but since then I've done, you know, all those years in London working in Fleet Street. And I think that upset them a bit because they made me a D grade. And they said, we wouldn't, we don't count any of that. I mean, how rude, how rude. How Never rude mind. indeed. No. And just to finish that story off, I finally got my way up to just about, you have to go pluses and minuses, you know, it used to be a terrible system. Um, so how did you uh, work your way up? Did, did you have to do an exam? Well, you just or? Work. Oh, no, you just work. You so just, after just a period do... of work, they might say, okay, now you're a, no, a you're B-. Minus. But I think they used to do it perhaps at the end of the year or six months here. They'd review everyone. And they got around to reviewing me, and um, the editor of the paper called me in, which I suppose is a courtesy, to explain that although I should have got an A grade, I couldn't have one because a male colleague, his wife was expecting their fourth child and therefore he would have the A grade that was available. But I could have another $20 a week as expenses, which of course didn't last very long because they had a review of expenses and none of us got any after that, and I didn't get my A grade. Um, I mean, that truly was the glass ceiling in the 70s. It's, I don't make it up. It's amazing, amazing. That's how it was. Awful. Awful. Uh, but anyway, I did finally get my A grade upon which I resigned um, <laughs> because they were trying to make me into a manager instead of a journalist. Right. Um, and, and instead you, of going, you, you didn't want that know, responsibility? No, I didn't want to sit at a desk. No, no, I was having much too much fun yeah. <laughs> going out and finding the stories. Yeah. So you were working, working as, as an arts journalist then or you were no, a general journalist? All sorts journalist. of things, right, yes. Okay. I was a columnist and feature writer covering all sorts of ground. I mean, one of my favourite memories was... Um, going to work dressed in my very best for going to the first night at the opera, Sydney Opera House that night. And lo and behold, the Strand Arcade caught fire and I was one of the people sent out to cover the story. And of course I got covered in smut and smoke and my shoes, I was ankle deep in water and I was standing across the road from it and uh, the group of people all just observing the fire quite close. And suddenly behind us, it was a terrible crack and the glass window behind us <laughs> broke in half. So we all fled. And I went to the opera <laughs> with quite a story to tell when they asked, why did I look like that? <laughs> so I was doing news and features and, you know, whatever. We're talking about the Sydney Opera House. You are, of course, the author of the That's Sydney right. Opera House from the outside in. in. Oh, good, you got that. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. No, absolutely. So what has that building meant to the quality of arts in not only Sydney but Australia? Has mm -hmm. that brought... Did the Opera House bring a world initially. focus to us? Or? Yes, yes, but I think so many things have happened since then. Um, at the time, it's certainly... Um, can I go back a bit Yeah, sure, on that? sure. Um, more coming should I even tell you how I began to, began to review dance at the Sydney Morning Herald? Oh, right, it, yeah, That's absolutely. another bit of extraordinary luck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and also, I should say, I was arts editor as well before I left. That's when I left. 
So um, I, just, I just thought yes. that was a nice segue because we had the Opera House, but by all means, let's uh, let's finish the dance. No, we'll finish the dance and then we'll come back right. to the Opera House. Well, it's only that um, uh, having got a job at the Sydney, at the Sydney Morning Herald um, with some difficulty, um, I then was working away in news and suddenly there was quite a hoo-ha uh, amongst the executives because a huge story had broken in the arts and the Sydney Morning Herald knew nothing about it because the Netherlands Dance Theatre had come to Australia, terrific international company, and one of the dancers in the course of the evening was for a very few minutes actually stark naked, a male dancer. And as Robert Hilton said almost, he told me it wasn't quite, quote, right, but it's much better. The quote that last night everything stops when the music does. Yeah. And of course people were very excited. And the Sydney Morning Herald didn't even have a review of it. And they were really concerned. They would never have known the company had been in Australia but for this one new dancer. So one perspicacious person said, I seem to remember in your application you said you'd reviewed dance in London. And I said, yes. And the poor dance critic who was out in the, in the Pacific, running a Pacific dance festival, unfortunately hadn't left anyone looking after her job. She was sacked, and I was taken on to be the dance reviewer. Um, just um, like that? Just like that. And poor thing, I mean, I did get to know her later, and I always felt very sorry for her, but she was a really good reviewer and a good person. But um, she should have left somebody reviewing Netherlands yep. Dance Theatre, yeah. which is a great lesson to learn, let me tell you. Well, that was quite in, in impressive that, that the uh, the newspapers did have an arts, uh, a dance reviewer yes, at, at that all, time. W w nobody's, you're only paid by the, a tiny amount by the reviews that you do, there's yeah. no sinecure of any kind. Um, but it was, again, an extraordinary bit of luck, and I always tell people these stories because people say, you know, how do you get there, how do you do it? Luck is so in both cases, in London first and then in Sydney. Yeah, yeah. It's both a, situations were sheer, sheer... You've life. got to have a skill set, of course, but it well, very much again, is because the I right place journalism at the right time. In my yeah. background, yeah. I knew about deadlines, I knew about how to put words together, I knew about keeping to the wordage, I knew about etc. But I'm sure that, that, that young student who, you know, how do I become a dance critic? <laughs> well, you know, it's in the lap of the gods, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. It really is, yeah. Yeah, yes. Now... You were asking me about the Sydney Opera House. Um, such an extraordinary place. And I must say, writing the book that I did was to find out a lot about its background, which I didn't know because I wasn't living in Sydney in those days, um, nor, uh, I suppose, first living in Adelaide and then in London. Um, it was such a sad, sad story of what if, what if, what if and going through, back through all the cuttings and the files to write that book. Um, I don't think Utsum actually meant to resign. Um, I think he, he did, but he didn't think he was really going to go. Uh, and then he did, and various personalities and politics getting in the way, and a very, very difficult situation. It's an extraordinary story, and one that, that continues to keep us... Engaged and entertained yes. and fascinated and, and thrilled. Two books just out, which I haven't read yet, but I'm going to buy, um, um, which I'm looking forward to Yes, yes. I had an interview with the, the author the other day, and, and you learn all sorts of things, you know, through through um, those sorts of uh, discussions. Um, I didn't know that the Opera House original site was on the opposite side of the harbour, where the, the passenger terminal is. Uh, That's where I, they had I it. must say, I didn't know either. Yeah, and apparently it was um, Goosens who mm. said, no, you must build it over... Where, where the trams where were. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. And there it was, mercifully. Um, of the site, I mean. Yeah. Um, to be able to be used. Um, yes, there are all many, many, many extraordinary stories about all that. But what difference it made to the arts? Yes, I think it was a great focus. And I think it was extraordinary that... I shouldn't say it's extraordinary. But... When you look back on it, a Labour government, um, somebody who wasn't, you would think, an arts person, quote-unquote, um, who insisted that this was an important thing for Australia to do. I think it was an inevitable that we would have a national um, art house at, at some point. Well, at some point. But anyway, that was how it happened. Yeah. Uh, so there were many extraordinary ways of making it happen. And once it was there, yes, it was a huge focus on the arts. 
but uh, a very good time for it to happen because that was when the incoming Whitlam government put some money into the arts and also some importance into it. Um, now, p people rave about the Whitlam government and the arts and they mourn the loss of that period and all that sort of thing. It, it, it must have been extraordinary, was it? And what, what was really, really good was that people who loved the arts, and there are many, many of them, um, they had been working so hard without much reward beforehand and suddenly there was money, seeding money, and they were all ready for it. There were people just ready to go, and particularly, I think, in theatre and dance. Um, I'm not quite sure. Music had actually had a bit of a blossoming earlier um, with composers like Richard Mill and Peter Sculthorpe. Um, so that was just a bit ahead. But the theatre and dance was just amazing what came out of it. But it wouldn't have happened if those people hadn't been right on the brink of being able to come and perform for a public. And ex they were exploring all sorts of things in tiny, dingy places. Now they had actual venues, but not many at the Sydney Opera House because it was too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> so that was really only the mainstream. But in that case, it was a filtering down of interest and venues being coming up all over the place and companies. So very exciting. So after your career as, well, I mean, it's still going as a dance critic, but you've diversified into you know writing about the Opera House and, um, oh, yes, and the yes. visual arts. Yes, I did finish up in the visual arts because I... Um, reviewed, uh, sorry, I edited uh, Look Magazine, which is the um, members' magazine for the Art Gallery Society of the Art Gallery of New South Wales. And that was a whole new education for me. You see, journalism is amazing, isn't it? Another education <laughs> um, into the visual arts and great, great fun. Monthly magazine, or 11 times a year, so good as monthly. Um, and I did that for 13 years. Um, and... I must say I learnt an enormous amount and had a great time, so it was good fun. Earned some money as well. <laughs> well, that's always important when you're working in the arts, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes. <laughs> and also, out of that, my most recent... I've done several books and edited various things um, and contributed to a great many, um, but my most recent one was a most beautiful volume on Ken Unsworth, the sculptor, which I have made only the tiniest contribution, but it's a wonderful volume, really old-fashioned, good quality, great pictures. Um, but Ken, apart from his sculptures and drawings, paintings, um, has worked over the years with a group of dancers, senior dancers, um, Australian I, I, dance artists. Have you I've, been, to, I've indeed been to one of those showings in his, right, in his so gallery, which is fantastic. So you wouldn't know how dancers go on and on, because yeah, they're yeah. now in their 60s and 70s, I think. Even the youngest one is yeah, in 60. Um, Anker and... Um, Anker Frankenhäuser yeah. and Patrick Harding-Irma, who were both with the London Contemporary Dance Theatre yeah. um, that I spoke about earlier in London. Um, but he's Australian and she's Finnish, but um, married and came out here. But, but it and is Susan so... Susan Barling and Ross Phillip, who were with Sydney Dance. It's so affirming seeing those performances. And, oh, um, I think they're fantastic. And, and it's beautiful to see, you know, the... the the body with age that can still be so graceful and communicate some exactly. really engaging so stories. Going back to where we were talking in the beginning, um, what they communicate is not necessarily something specific. You can make of it what you will, really. And, and um, Ken's contribution there with the, the sets that he designs, yes, yes. etc., also complement uh, the performance. Talk to me a bit about, you know, you, you know when you go to see a dance performance, of course, it's the dancer, which is at the, the core of the whole mm -hmm. experience. But the many contributions, because theatre is a collaboration, of, oh, of the lighting designer, of the set designer, the costume designer. Mm -hmm. How can they make or break oh, a performance? Oh, totally. Yeah. And if it's a very good um, communication between them, uh, it makes all the difference in the world. And you can see sometimes that somebody's designed that set particularly and it really has nothing to do with what the dancers are doing. But on the other hand, when the dance is being made, the set may have already been in construction on some of the bigger companies, and they're still developing the dance. So it may not be the set designer's fault, if that makes sense. Um, but that's where smaller companies can quite often be miles ahead. And I guess because they're, they're more flexible. 
And I guess there's those relationships that certain choreographers have with designers oh, where yes, they're, they're yes. all on the same and, page and, and building if, together. If they're lucky enough to get commissioned music as well, um, or music that is perhaps recently composed and they can s- still communicate communicate with the composer. Because um, that's another uh, vital thing for, for the dance, the, the, sc- the score. Absolutely. Although, of course, some dance can be in silence. We know yes. that too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there are all sorts of elements like that, and lighting's getting more and more interesting, but can be, to me, more and more destructive. Um, and I get very frustrated. Sometimes the lighting uh, is very fashionable and very atmospheric, and you can't see. <laughs> very low lighting, and it is, it's lovely. You can see the bodies, but you can't quite see well enough. Um, Yes, that, it means that frustrates me. So I think, wait a minute, they let the, the lighting person go a bit mad there. <laughs> yes, it needs to complement the bodies, doesn't it, rather than sort it of does. And there are different ways of lighting bodies, and sometimes the side lighting is somebody really wants that, but it doesn't help the audience see what what's going on. It looks rather beautiful. Anyway, it just depends what people want to get out of a performance, and if the choreographer wants that, and maybe only wants us to see a shadow of a performer mistily in the distance, well. That's how it is, and who am I to complain? So there. (laughs) (laughs) I think a costume design too, which can, you know, accentuate a line or... Oh, yes, yes. Yes, some good and bad ones we've seen lately, and sometimes um, very disappointing uh, in a recent very big production that the Australian Ballet did, um, using a designer not accustomed to dancers. And I think this has happened, I've seen it, quite a few times really people forget that dancers move and they don't realise which ways the dancers will sometimes be moving which will do awful things to their costumes which in turn do awful things to the dancers movements Mm. and you go oh what a pity those must have cost a fortune a fortune to make and why didn't somebody intervene and say now you're quite sure that design's going to look good because in this case it was a classical ballet you knew what they were going to be doing, so it wasn't something that came recently. <laughs> um, so uh, things don't always work as well as they should. Do you have a preference for the, the classical repertoire or contemporary repertoire? Or you were preset no, or facets? I, I, like, I, like, I like both, yeah. but I do like the classical when it's very good. Um, and if it's not so good, because usually you're seeing the same ballets over and over again, um, so you have a memory which you try not to bring uppermost in your mind, but you can't help it sometimes. And you think, oh, I wish I'd, you know, they so, did it as well as so-and-so 20 years ago. <laughs> anyway. And is that the same choreography? You know, you say you're yes. seeing... Yes. Yes. But people do different things with it. Um, I'm just thinking, you know, you go to see a sh- you go to see Midsummer Night's Dream, you know, we've mm-hmm. seen about 10 productions of yes. that, but each new director brings a new production yes. concept, but I suppose you're fairly limited you're with fairly those classic limited, ballets, yes. so you've got to do that choreography. But people do do different things, and also sometimes they, you find you've been seeing one uh, producer's idea or something, and people reach back and go further back and say, ah, but, you know, 50 years ago someone did so-and-so. We'll look back to that, and there's a lovely production of um, uh, Swan Lake, which the Royal Ballet has in London, which Royal Ballet has just recently done, um, and in fact that was was just quite lovely, um, in the sense that you were seeing some surprises. And you said, oh, didn't have that. Oh, had that. Oh, that bit of music's popped up there. And that's another thing. People can move music around, which Graham Murphy's done as well with right. Swan Lake. So, so people do do things that can have an element of change. And then you had that out of left field, a company like Matthew Bournes, who does the oh, all, yes, all male yes. swan lake. Which wasn't really all male. It's only all male swans. Yes, right. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. But, but his is terrific. Hmm. And it's really quite savage at the end. I, I, I assume you've seen it. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, but the always. success of reinvention and um, oh, yes, that was offering a new experience. And see, I think Graham Murphy's swan lake is very good, and that has a sort of updated version. Um, it still has royals and it still has things happening which are dreadful but uh, everyone's done it all over the world because the, the classics are the classics they are as you say like a Midsummer Night's Dream yeah. they can be done in different ways but the actual there'll certainly be certainly be actual steps which nobody's going to change but I suppose in Shakespeare they're going to be actual the, lines the dialogues are the same yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it probably quits there 
What do you enjoy most about reviewing? Mm. Probably, I don't, I don't really know. Going to see things, a lot of things that perhaps, I mean, it's very, if I had to pay for every ticket I went to see, of things I went to see, I, I wouldn't see as many. Um, I also like to be seeing things that perhaps I might think I'd prefer to be in bed reading a book, thank you. And sometimes when I'm there, that's what I think as well. But often you get a chance to see things that are really quite different and quite a surprise in all sorts of out-of-the-way venues um, that you have to make the effort to go and see and, and you're rewarded. So there's always that possibility. I always go hoping that I'm going to see something interesting and something that I'll enjoy and want to write happily about. <laughs> What's the the toughest part about reviewing? Oh, when it's something that you dis you're disappointed in and try to explain in so few words why. <laughs> yeah, and still fulfil your responsibility to the, the reader. Oh, yes. To yes, communicate. Yes. Yeah. And what I also like to do, and I don't know whether I succeed or not, is that I do like to, in a sense, as much as possible, leave it to the reader's own judgment, wanting them to go and see for themselves. I don't want to say, don't bother. Um, I always want to leave it a little bit open in the way that I write, so that the reader might think, oh, well, that sounds quite interesting to me, um, that the music was loud and deafening, or something like that. Um, on the other hand, I want to say that music is loud and deafening for those who hate loud and deafening music. Um, and they will know to keep away, but others will think, oh, that's terrific. Um, go to that. So you want to try and leave it a little bit open, if, if you can, but that's quite hard. And the other thing is, I should say, I'm making critical noises about other people occasionally, um, but also people do criticise my reviews for not being detailed enough, um, in which they're quite right. But that's the, I'm not heavily into technical detail. I would rather give. That's my choice. Right. Yes. And some people love to know more technical detail, but a I absolutely haven't got room for it now anyway. Um, but even when I did have more room, I was more concerned with giving an idea of the performance more into the theatre of it, the actual performance, than a blow by blow description of what what the dancers did. And I guess you're writing for Mr. and Mrs. GP, I'm who you may not have that I'm knowledge I'm not writing for a dance magazine, yeah. yes, although I have written for dance magazines. Are you able to get a bit more technical um, in, in those yes, reviews? Yes, but yeah. I, don't, I don't review for a dance. I think there should be as many, we've got so few, few voices, there should be as many voices as possible writing about different things, and I have occasionally reviewed for magazines. Um, are, there many voice, are there many voices out there reviewing? Uh, well, there sort of newspapers is obviously um, the Herald and the Australian and the Age and the Advertiser, the Courier Mail, just the main newspapers in each city, and we're talking about Australia now, um, Dance Australia, and there are also other outlets, and of course there are now all the social media, so there are a lot of blogs, and so there are in fact, it's good now, there are more voices out there. Well, I guess, you know, the, the, the crisis that newspapers are facing, you know, and going online and, mm -hmm. and all that sort of thing has meant that... Herald being taken over by Channel 9, I, I can't think that reviews will last very long yeah. once that's decided, and I assume it will be. I think um, shareholders have still to vote, but the board of directors have said yes, and I don't think it will go back. I'm sure it will happen. So we're seeing those voices going to online blogs and social yes, media, etc. Is that something I'm that you might do sure. one day? I don't know. I haven't thought about it yet, but um, I think I've probably done my dash <laughs> over so long. <laughs> I, so. I know with um, Alyssa Blake and um, her husband oh, yes. who reviews, they've started the Audrey Journal yes, online, yes. which is a, a great go-to. Um, yes. Because I miss you know seeing those theatre reviews and the hell, etc., from certain voices. Yeah. Yes, yes. Jill, I hope that you are around for a lot, lot longer <laughs> writing. I know you'll be around a lot, lot longer, but I hope you continue writing uh, because, you know, you're a voice which I think has contributed tremendously to the development of the arts in certainly in Australia. Well, th dance. thank you very much. No, I think very much so. <laughs> I mean, you know, people are sort of 
uh, eagerly look forward to seeing reading your reviews from the, the latest dance offerings uh, around the place. So, um, and I certainly have learnt heaps from from reading your reviews. So, thank you uh, for talking to stages today and um, sharing your your vast knowledge about the role of the uh, of the reviewer. You're very very flattering. <laughs> thank you for your compliments. <laughs> and I must say, I've enjoyed it, and I hope I haven't chatted on too long. Not at all. You've been wonderful. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I love stages, don't you? Always something new to learn. If you enjoyed this conversation, you're bound to enjoy many more from the Stages Archive. You'll find conversations with Tony Lamond, Geraldine Turner and Andrew McFarlane, just to name a few, all with fascinating tales across all stages. Find the podcast on Wooshka or in iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe so that you may receive each new episode as it drops. And take the time to rate and review the podcast, please. It helps us reach a broader audience and share these great conversations. I'm Peter Ayers, and you've been listening to Stages.